someone reminded me the other evening that I once said, greed is good. Now it seems it's legal. So, Finn, what are you wearing? Uh, a t-shirt. Uh, pants. Oh, okay. Shoes. Is it, what glasses. Ca- what look are you going for? I'm not sure if there's a name for it, but it's what I'm always going for. Okay. Welcome on to my fashion uh, review podcast. I call it Look Who's Looking Now, because um, I started it when I was a baby. In uh, 1992, I foresaw this was originally just traded as just massive web files on, on you know, rec.arts.childtalk. Yeah, but then later on, you, you had your own Angel Fire site. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I had an Angel Fire site back when, to get an Angel Fire site, you had to capture and emulate an astral being. Yeah. Every week, as I have since 1992, we're entering nearly the 29th year of the podcast. And yep. I like to interview the movers and shakers in the world that we call fashion. Absolutely. And you've been making a bit of a big splash recently with, uh, as you describe it, your look that does not have a name. The look that dare not speak its name. Obviously, this is the question I ask every week, which is what got you into fashion? A lot of people have like a aha moment where they look at something and it scares the living daylights out of them and think take on me fashion uh, like when I was talking to to Anna Wintour she said I it was I, it was it was also in like 1992 and I was listening to um, a Madonna song called Vogue right and, and um, I told my assistant stop that music what did she just say uh, and she said, Vogue. And I said, I've got a pretty crazy idea. So what, what's your aha moment? What, what made, what scared the living daylights out of you and made you say, take on me fashion? For me personally, it was when I was a child. Uh, mm. I, was, I was about I was about three or four years old. And that was in the, it was late seventies. Ah, uh, good. <laughs> I was about three or four years old. And I, was, I was watching t- uh, TV one day, and Eddie Murphy's Raw came on. Uh, yeah, yeah. And I saw I saw his the harrowing tale of a young cannibal. Yep, and I saw his red leather jumpsuit, and I was yeah. like. That's what fashion is. Um, when I first saw that, I thought, there is nothing that man reminds me more of than a nutty professor to the clumps. Personally, he reminded me more of the concept of 1,000 words. <laughs> I, uh, when, I, when I first saw Roar in the, in the late 70s, mm. um, I've become <laughs> unstuck in time. I, I got a big glass pain that I normally a lot of people when they're planning their fashion podcast yeah. use whiteboards but I've just got standing bits of glass and I put it in front of uh, the television right and I that's ju- also helpful if anyone wants to do a chase scene for your apartment <laughs> yeah yeah it makes it um, a lot more tactile or, or um, and it's mainly used to plan Mission Impossible stunts I have to be oh, honest of course, yeah. I put it in front of the screen and I thought this voice is funny but it would be funnier if it was coming out of, and I drew a donkey, uh, and the person I was with, Andre Leon Talley, another fashion luminary, he's, he's great. Um, most people remember his work as the best uh, judge on America's Next Top Model. A lot of people say it's one of the J's. Um, it's Andre Leon Talley. The, the time he says he would put one of the photos in his boudoirs, 
top five America's Next Top Model moment. Um, and he said, my drawing was pretty bad because, you know, I, I look at fashion. I don't, I don't make fashion. Exactly, and he said, yeah. is that a dragon? And I said, yes. And he said, I have great idea. And he picked up his phone and he said, Roy, Roy <laughs> Disney, it's your cousin. Andre Leon Talley Disney. I've got that new dragon you were looking for. And he held up the phone uh, to the piece of glass. So now that you see people walking the streets in your look, the pants, the T-shirt, glasses and shoes, it's a distinct look. And Mm. a lot of people are taking it. And I've talked to a lot of people, you know, when I talked to Diane Keaton, mainly about her film hanging up. But I also was like, you know, after Annie Hall, the whole world looked like you had that film. Uh, And she... As, as we know, uh, was holding a glass of water. It immediately shattered in her hand. Uh, and, and she stared me dead in the eyes and said, if I wanted it, everyone to wear it, my name would be Diane Wheaton. We. <laughs> as opposed to Diane Meaton. Uh, and it turns out that... You were interviewing the, the wrong person. <laughs> no, the the K in her name is a stylistic rotation of an M that looks a bit like a K, if you think about it. How does that feel for you, seeing a lot of people out there? And what what is your signature look? Some people love it, and some people like... Like Miss Keaton hate it. Part of what I enjoy about about fashion is I enjoy finding a look that is distinctive, but also uh, totally anonymous. Uh, yeah, is why, yeah. as as a as a child, I would often wear all camouflage because I want. <laughs> Because I wanted to be noticed, but I also wanted to be invisible. And that was when people first became uh, aware of you as a fashion icon. You're exactly. a real uh, Tavi Givenson. Uh, a- absolutely. Um, I, was a, I, was a, I was a child influencer. <laughs> yeah, a Dutch influencer, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mainly influencer. That's why a lot of people had camouflage on their chins. <laughs> I don't understand why you're laughing. This is a very serious fashion podcast. So, But you were saying you Distinct but anonymous. So you enjoy that it, you could kind of be anyone and that anyone could kind of be anyone. Yes. As more and more people adopt my signature style, it becomes harder to pick me out of the crowd. Yeah. Which allows me to commit my crimes more easily. <laughs> Your fashion crimes? No, I can't say what sort of crimes. <laughs> you can. It's safe space. <laughs> <laughs> you brought a special subject to the podcast. What special subject have you brought? I, I, I brought... I bought two films for us to talk about. Two, oh. two, two films that that I think have to do with fashion. Ah, right. Uh, Zoolander and Zoolander Number Two, I presume. Uh, yes. Oh, yeah. great. Let, 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 let's let's talk about Zoolander. <laughs> we'll start with Number Two. Yeah. What, what What do you think about Neil deGrasse Tyson's cameo? I mean, he's done worse. Yeah, but like. Not saying a whole lot because <laughs> he, he he also did a cameo in the extended version, the, the extended cut of uh, of Batman versus Superman. Please, its name is Batman versus Superman: colon, Dawn, Dawn, Dawn of, of Zack Snyder's Justice League. Are you excited about the fact that Zack Snyder's Justice League is rated R for language? No, because if there's one thing I want. It is for like Superman to punch Lex Luthor and call him like a pussy. But it is like that, that, that's what I was swearing it's going to be. Like yeah. I, 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 I want Superman to call Lex Luthor a cunt. <laughs> yeah. Like, like I'm always just not interesting to me. 
<laughs> what if but, it is? But Zack Snyder's a fucking coward and you won't do it. Okay, here is a scene that you could add to bat. That's my intro, by the way, the yeah. fashion podcast thing. Um, uh, 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 a way you could immediately punch up uh, Zack Snyder's uh, Justice League is a scene of Batfleck dealing with Jared Leto's Joker. Ben Affleck is just playing modern Ben Affleck, mm. so he's just so fucking tired <laughs> and over it and at some point, just rubbing his fingers on the bridge of his nose. He's like, just, you're such a cunt. You, <laughs> you don't have to be like this while he's probably being like, oh, look at all my knives. Yeah, I, I, from what I've heard, most of the like extra link for the Zack Snyder's Justice League is just like bloops so they, they didn't, they didn't use. <laughs> I quite like that idea. Yeah. Just, just, put, just put them back in. Who cares? Like, absolutely who gives a shit if they, if they just put some bloops in? I'm like, yeah, the, am- the amount of it scenes- It would be the best thing Zack Snyder's ever done. The amount of scenes in Justice League that would be improved by just when it's like, when, when, when Ezra Miller's Flash is like, oh, why don't we get uh, some brunch? So where the eggs are in their eggs, you know, that they're basically chicken abortions. This is so crazy. And then we just pan <laughs> to Henry Cavill, like resting his fist on his face and be like, really? Are they really? really? Are they re- <laughs> really? That's fascinating. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it zooms into Henry Cavill's brain. It's just a scene of him beating the shit out of Ezra Miller. Not, not, not Superman beating up a Flash. Henry Cavill beating up Ezra Miller. Or you do you remember the most Zack Snyder bit of that film, which is when Aquaman uh, uh, in the small fishing town in Iceland goes back into the sea. It's all slow mo wave scratching, and he's drinking Jack Daniels. Yeah, throws it slow motion into the water. The waves crash and he disappears, and it is the most ridiculously tryhard thing. Yeah. The idea of then cutting to Ben Affleck or Gal Gadot just being like, cool, <laughs> good one. Oh, the shot just holds for a while, and you see Jason Momoa come up like five meters away. And he's just like, I was in Stargate Atlantis, and this is more demeaning than that. He just comes up and he's like, I'm so fucking cold right now, guys. I just swim shirtless and in jeans. We're actually. We actually filmed this in Norway. <laughs> I desperately want to see just an establishing shot of, you know, uh, Scandinavian water mm. crashing, horrific, cold, and then popping out of water into the frame. Is Jason Momoa going, oh, my nipples! <laughs> <laughs> Ouch! Hello and welcome to Shite and Sound, the podcast where two comedians watch one of the masterpieces of world cinema and then follow it up with a critically reviled film that is similar in some way. Maybe they share themes, plot, actors or director. We want to see if counterpointing these two films can bring out some new information or insights. This week we watched number 74 on the Shite and Sound list, Leclise, the final part of Michelangelo Antonioni's trilogy on modernity and its discontents and cinema's greatest ode uh, to walking around and moping. Our second film this week is Wall Street, Money Never Sleeps. Two hours of Shia LaBeouf trying to intimidate Michael Douglas and Josh Brolin. So we watched Michelle Antonioni's Le Calice, yeah. The Eclipse. During it, 
you were reading that you were reading from an article of what Orson Welles has said about other film directors. Yeah. And, and you found his quote about Antonioni. Because here's the thing about Orson Welles. He was a, a, a kind of cranky, cantankerous, incredibly bitter man. He was, I would call him a w- wacky funster, Oscar the Grouch. Because he is an Oscar, he was, a, and he was a grouch. Yeah, he, if you look online, there are, uh, lot, lots of like articles, compilations of him shit talking every single major director <laughs> yeah. from the forties onwards, <laughs> and like, and like pretty accurate about most of them. Like, yeah. <laughs> even the ones you about people you like, you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now you got me. Well, he, he was once asked about Antonioni and and Bergman, and he said, "There's a lot of Bergman and Antonioni that I'd rather be dead than sit through." And he also said, "According to a young American film critic, one of the great discoveries of our age is the value of boredom as an artistic subject. If so." Antonio only deserves to be counted as a pioneer and a founding father. He is a maker of movies that amount to perfect backdrops for fashion models. And I think he is right. Yes. In a way. And the most interesting, I've, I've not seen all of his work. Now I've seen this, I've seen Blow Up, seen Passenger. I've yeah, seen, I've, I've seen this and Blow Up. And I'm, I'm going to see La Ventura soon. Yeah. I've also seen Zabriskie Point mm. and uh, his Point of Eros. And like, there, there, there are major bits missing from that. But it, it's very telling to me that Blow Up is the one of his films that I think is good in what I'd term a conventional way. Yes. Um, uh, in the, I'm sure that if I was real blazed, I would be real fucking into the eclipse because it is like the opening scene is like five minutes of two people just moping. Yeah. They're like sort of having an argument and breaking up. But also, that's not really the focus of the scene. Because, and the focus of the scene is really, um, we meet the lead, uh, Vittoria, uh, Monica Vitti, yep. um, and, and she just seems to, with absolutely like no motivation or whatever, just she's like posing by the window and she yeah. looks incredible. Or she's just like walking around, just like turning lights off and on so she can have like different lighting for, for different parts of the different parts of the scene. And all of those poses look great. Yeah. But it really seems seems like a motion editorial it very much seems like like the abstractness of it and the listlessness of it seems so exterior to what it wants us to actually be engaging with narratively yeah. or even thematically there was a short came out in 2019 which was made by luca guadagino uh it's called like the vanishing girl it's like a 30 minute short film uh which was also uh, entirely funded by one of those like uh, French fashion companies. I, I yeah. can't remember if it was like Dior or whatever. It was, it was one of those, and it was it, it was funded in order to show off and advertise their like their new uh, line of dresses. And so it's like a real. It feels like a real movie for parts of it. It's got like Kyle MacLachlan and Julianne Moore. It's got like a bunch of real people in it. But then the entire time is just like it's just about okay, where can we put this famous or attractive person like? in a dress in like a really nice looking shot and then it does not cohere into any sort of story and it's just sort of people wandering around and now seeing this type of Antonioni movie for the first time like okay yes Guadagino was just doing like an Antonioni sort of thing but so so much of the eclipse is people in nice clothes yeah standing around and talking she breaks up with this guy then she goes to meet her mum at the stock exchange and her mum's stockbroker is Alan Delon and then Alan Delon makes some money and loses some money yeah. and, and then they talk about it and then they kiss through glass yeah. and then it's the end 
And it made me think about Tom Ford's films and specifically about a single man, the Colin Firth one, which at the time I remember being accused in some quarters of just being a fashion film. Right. Uh, when I think Tom Ford's real skill as a filmmaker is that he can work very hard to manufacture reasons why it makes sense for things to look like a fashion film. Right. Yeah. Like I think they're very justified and kind of earned. And I think they work. I especially think they work in a single man his follow-up um whose name escapes me nocturnal animals i thought it worked less so but it's also the curse of seeing this film since we've seen you haven't seen eros right no uh, eros is a is a three-part film he made one part it's an anthology film another is by uh, soderbergh and another is by Wong Kar Wai. Mm. And, and seeing him in, in the late 90s or early noughts when you put Antonioni's approach up against Soderbergh and Wong Kar Wai and it's Soderbergh working in his kind of highly polished noir slick mode which that he's so good at because yeah. he both loves it hates and fears it which means that maybe it's his father anyway <laughs> Uh, is that you go like, oh, we've seen so many people look at Antonioni's work and go like, yeah, but what if we were doing something with this? Mm. And, and like, as he develops and like blow up feels like he's doing something with it because yeah. it's literally it's about a photographer. It's about taking images. It's what about staring into images is. But then he he kind of laps out of that and like passenger and Zabriski point feel like just excuses to point cameras at things for very long times and right. they're, they're beautiful and they're hypnotic and mesmeric but like as someone who has been both has been hypnotized and mesmerized by by a psychic in lower heart um like it does not take much to do that i i, I kind of feel bad that we didn't see the eclipse in a cinema yeah, where we could really tune into it but i also kind of feel like that speaks more to the power of cinema it's sitting in a darkened room with only one thing to look at than it does to the power of the eclipse. Yeah, I think this is a film that, like, in two uh, separate senses of the word, both does and does not demand your attention. Yeah. It's a film that, like, you kind of have to pay attention to, but also it does nothing really to to grab your attention apart from looking very good. And that is not a small achievement. Yeah. Like, yeah. It, it looks... Every frame in it is exquisite. Yes. Like, uh, every moment of it is... Yeah, the, the light... Who shot it? Gianni Di Venan. Right. Uh, he died very tragically young. That's uh, uh, right. very sad. They worked together up until that point. Oh, he made it. He shot an eight and a half. Oh, okay. He did the Honeypot, the, the Mankiewicz film. And, and the achievement of that and how iconic images of this feel, even if you haven't seen any of them before, is really impressive. Yeah. Uh, and the film is kind of at its best when it's people lazing around because when it gets characters to do things, it's like dress in blackface. Um, yeah. Well, but like that, the extended blackface sequence is also which part of the movie I was most paying attention to. Yeah. But that, <laughs> because like that, that's a part where it's like doing something and you're like, oh, I cannot look away from this. Yeah. It, 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 uh, yeah. Victoria hangs out with some of her friends. Uh, one of her friends was born and raised on like a plantation in Kenya and so she's got like pictures of African people like, all, all over her walls and she's got lots of like souvenirs that she's brought back uh, also seems to have uh, an unlimited 
supply of boot polish. <laughs> and so Vittoria dresses up in, in an incredibly crude and like unadulteratedly racist performance of a generic African tribes person. Yeah. Um, and then spends like, it felt like 20 minutes, but it was probably like one minute. I think it might have been like three or four minutes. Just like in, in full body, like black paint with the like rings around her neck, dancing around to some weird, like generic drumming. It's a, it's a very confronting scene to see in a movie that you don't expect to see it in. Like uh, if it happened in, in, if it happened in like intolerance, I'd be like, sure, this is what yeah. I expect from this movie. <laughs> Just, that does seem like what someone would do while trying to apologize for Birth of a Nation. Yeah. If it happened in like Bamboozled, it'd be fine. <laughs> oh. Then her her friend from Kenya comes out and she's like, Oh, let let's let's stop playing inward dress up or, or whatever. Yeah. And then they they all, they all have a nice uh lie down on her bed and uh, and then she gets to talk about uh, uh how terrible it is uh being around Africans. The film obviously uh is it does does not agree with her. It does not agree with her but also this film is very specifically like not taking a stand on anything no which like with how Antonio only like directed actors I'm, I'm not sure like how like how true this is but like you hear stories of him making his actors do like dozens and dozens of takes just to drain like all of the energy and emotion out of their performances yeah that I, I think extends to like the way that he wants his actors to feel is the way that he wants the film to feel as well it is drained of any specific like viewpoint about anything it presents and I think that's part of its viewpoint I I think that's a good idea. Like, when it works in execution, it works. Yes. But because we have the scene of just unabashed racism and followed by her, the colonist, the colonizer has a long speech equating African people to animals, yeah. which is incredibly ugly and is clearly there to problematize the situation. Yes. But because Antonioni is spending so much time being cool and distant. Yeah. It, and, and because this is the only part it really like, grabs your attention. Which I mean, are, a lot of the yelling on the on the trading floor, sure, kind of lands, and I had much less of an idea what was going on. Yeah, yeah, things were going high. Then they lost a lot of money, and she followed the guy who lost money, and he drew flowers on a napkin. It, it, it's hard, hard to tell. But it, it's also like it's not a crime to have elusive or nomic plots. Yeah, some of my favorite films have plots that are impossible to follow, like the straight story or we bought a zoo or um 51st dates yeah. or the wedding singer I'm, or wedding crashes or <laughs> your favorite movie four weddings and a funeral and it's, yeah. it's very unclear to me what that title or, refers uh, to uh, why did i get married or why did i get married to a short film about love yeah or a short film about killing um or the killing the television series yeah like the grilling which is <laughs> where uh, uh, a woman in adorable jumpers um, investigates grill-based crimes. Uh, and her catchphrase is, that's my barbecue to arrest you. <laughs> the Grilling. Check it out. It's on Netflix. And you got to get past the subtitles. But the Scandi Noir tone really matches with the grim, gritty world of grill crime. Yeah, there's, there's nothing that people in... There's nothing that people in Sweden love to do more than than have an outdoor barbecue. <laughs> well, yeah, they they get their fermented fishes, uh, their buried turnips. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's beets you bury, right? Yeah. Beetroots you bury. Uh, uh, cursed berries, <laughs> <laughs> and they just stoke up a fire, put a grill over it. 
and then commit some crimes. Yeah, and then, and then have some delicious uh, fish and beets and berries hamburgers. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, they're not technically hamburgers because they're not in Hamburg. Yeah, and also they're made out of uh, beets and fishes and berries. Fishes? Yeah. It's fish, surely. It, it, it depends. But if I got the meat of several fishes... Together, that meat would just be fish. So, if you if you're talking about multiple different, it would be one hundred percent pure fish hunting. So, if if they're all from the same like type of fish, then that's just fish. But if you're talking about like multiple different like species of fish, it's fishes. But they're the same kind of fish, and that they're fish. (laughs) Okay, just pulled his glasses down his nose. Yeah, and go further. (laughs) They're now so precariously balanced on the end that he looks like. uh, now he's chewing. Oh, he's trying to get them to fall yeah. off. I thought he was working on his bewitched nose. Yeah, I, I, look, I was also thinking about bewitched when I was doing I mean, you just move it. Nicole Kidman worked on her bewitched nose twitch for a year. Yeah, and where did that get her? I mean... Uh, apart from the starring role in Bewitched. It's not. Will Ferrell is the lead no. of that film. But he 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 was he was so hot right then. Everyone loved William Ferrell. Yeah, hot off an Oscar. Nicole Kidman was just a standard Saturday Night yeah. Live person, ba- running off the success of Talladega Nights. Exactly. Nicole Nicole Kidman washed up hag. Will Ferrell. <laughs> he 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 used to uh, he he used to laugh during sketches. Yeah, you know he's a real pro. Um. Did he? I thought that was James Fallon. Uh, I mean, it's, it's everyone on Saturday Night Live. No. Um, I'll have you know that Chevy Chase <laughs> has never even let a smile cross his face. <laughs> his face is permanently affixed in the most painful grimace. So here's the thing about the eclipse is, is that even now I can feel it sliding from my mind. Yeah. And it, it does also feel somewhat like it has driven me mad <laughs> in a way that I'm sure... I will inevitably be like 70 and have nothing to do and and be like, grandkids, take those hollow chips out of your visors and I'll show you. We're going to watch my laser disc of (laughs) Lickleese. Yeah. Let me show you how I used to watch uh, films, you know, pre the event. In the early 70s. (laughs) And I I think when I return to this, I will... I might enjoy it more. I could yeah. very easily see myself coming back to the eclipse and being like, I was wrong. It wasn't boring and just a lookbook for a fashion show where the themes were like, money is bad, question mark, and also uh, <laughs> blackface, and also like the streets of Rome. But that's like all of his films when he was shooting yeah. in, in Italian. Yeah. My big thing with Antonioni is before I saw any of Antonioni's films, I saw the Orson Welles film, The Other Side of the Wind, which like a big part of that is a film within a film that is a sort of parody of Antonioni type films. Yeah. The parts of The Other Side of the Wind that are that film are so incredibly beautifully shot. And like the whole point is like that 
all the actual uh, action in them is like vapid and meaningless, but they are so like propulsively edited, and yep. there is always so much going on that it is so much fun to watch. And I think it has ruined Antonioni for me <laughs> because I keep expecting it to be like propulsive and like compulsively watchable, which is the Eros thing mm. from another angle. And the, the watching Eros was like seeing these other two takes on the aesthetic, these other two people who've done similar aesthetics. Yeah. And, and done things that aren't just, oh, it's about identity, you know? Well, it's about, like, who are these people? And because, uh, like, as an embittered writer myself uh, and an aspiring filmmaker, I just think that, like, oh, it's about identity. It's about who are we? Who are these people? What are they? Is, like... Everything is by default already about that. Yeah. It's like, oh, what was the theme of this meal? Oh, the experience of eating. <laughs> and you're like, I mean, yeah, that's a given. It's like a dance piece about movement or a mime piece about things not being there or a country song about uh, endemic racism. <laughs> Or um, a new metal song about how mum won't wipe your Dorito-stained couch. Or, or a blue song about being sad. That's <laughs> <laughs> in the name, guys. Yeah. We get it. Or a mumblecore film about uh, having parents of means. <laughs> or um, a film set in New York yeah. where... Let lay off mumblecore. <laughs> what did it ever do to you? I mean, so few of these things have done anything to me. But if I could not talk about things that have not directly affected me in any way, I would be left talking only about three things. Doctor Who, Doctor Who spinoffs, and Doctor Who unofficial spinoffs. <laughs> those are all the things that have directly impacted me as a person. You take those away and I'm just an, a, a wobbly husker jelly being like... Who, what, when, where, and why. Yeah. And, and so on and so forth. I've been thinking a lot recently about how... We've talked about this before off mic. That's right, listeners at home. Sometimes me and Finn have conversations that aren't recorded. Yeah, it's usually while we're supposed to be watching movies. <laughs> um, and sometimes... Sometimes. Anyway, <laughs> about, like, how taste you can really trace taste to like they can be like you go back and you're like oh i didn't know it at the time oh yeah yeah but th that thing will send me on a course <laughs> of, of like deep interest in in various things and i kind of realized that almost everything i like about comedy comes from the fact that in 2002 on the bbci doctor who website they had a um webcast drama called real time in which the sixth doctor and his 60 year old um history teacher companion evelyn Smythe <laughs> encountered and battled the cybermen um and in the cast were richard herring and Stuart lee <laughs> this is true <laughs> Richard Herring has his head popped by a Cyberman. And in the uh, extra features, um, Gary Russell, who wrote and directed it, uh, and is, but is probably better known for being um, one of the famous five in the British TV adaptions oh, okay. or writing the books on the making of Lord of the Rings, <laughs> um, uh, was like, you know, I've just, I've always loved people like this and thought, you know, they, if, 
Doctor Who was still on TV today. These are the kind of people who would be in it. And I was like, oh. And then I looked into them and then everything kind of sprang out of that right, yeah. point. Um, and th- that's horrifying to me that the seed is that terrible and obscure. Yeah, the thing about Eclipse, it's interesting to me that Antonioni didn't start making films like this. His early things were a kind of neorealist right, semi-documentary. Yeah. Um, and, and fighting very deliberately against the aesthetics of that were imposed by the fascist state. Though he he wrote the fascists had a film magazine that he worked at for a while, but then again he fought the fascists right. as well. I mean, I'm I'm not saying he's a terrible person though. From the way his later films, especially, look at women, you know, there are definitely stories out there. Um, and we're also doing an Oliver Stone film, but we'll get <laughs> to him. But it does it, it is like grasping at air and ca- trying to drink water from cupped hands. It is kind of going anywhere. Would you recommend people see this film? I just think, just see Blow Up and like maybe The Passenger. Yeah, I I don't know. Like, unless you like the era, unless you like the look, unless you like the fashion, you know? Alan Dillon is like deservedly an iconic actor, Mm. but in this, he's just a guy in suits selling stocks and Mm. standing in the right part of the frame and the light hitting him in the right way. Yeah, I'll tell you, if you want to, watch Antonioni like yes start with Blop which is the one which has like a story and has uh, things happening and you can and like each moment kind of like tracks to the next for, for the most part and it still looks like it still looks fantastic yeah the 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 thing with Antonioni is like his films that I've seen so far are all like completely linear but everything just kind of feels non-linear yeah because of like how disconnected each moment feels yeah like, and, it, it feels like deliberately so yeah, yeah. yeah it feels like these scenes could be happening in any order and it would still make pretty much just as much sense yeah at the end of the film, there's this tone poem montage of, like, people on the street. Victoria's mother is one of them, but just random people, and then it ends on a shot as the sun sets and it becomes night, starts at sunrise, and so on. Um, the film starts at sunrise and yeah. ends at sunset. And it's this beautiful, immaculate montage of, of architecture and light hitting things. And then it goes close up on a street light, and the sun goes down, the light comes up bright. And then because it's Italian, it doesn't say thin, it says fine. It's like, yeah, yeah, fine. I am heartbroken that I don't get to see this as the new thing, mm. as the new way of shooting and showing narrative, because it would blow my mind. Mm. And, I, and I hate that the novelty of it is gone, because novelty is a real thing. And it, and it's tragic that that was kind of the arc of Antonioni's career was turning what was a, a novel, new, fresh way of approaching things and then doing it until he he died. So I guess what I'm saying is that I think it's bad sound if there's good shine. Yeah, yeah, I, I, would, I would agree with that. But it looks so good. It, it does. Yeah. It looks so fucking good. If you have any interest in, like, cinematography and, like, production design, yeah. this is a fantastic film to watch for that. So, I... Uh, the problem with Antonioni is that, that with his history, he's um controversial figure. Mm. And, and so I'm glad that we, to pair with it, we chose a film by one of the most nondescript standard just a guy yeah 
could ever be with him. With Antonioni, you, you know, you kind of often can't really tell what he's thinking. And I think, yeah. that's, I think that's true of our second director as well. But he's just a nice, calm guy. Hmm. We're talking hmm. about Oliver Stone, a man who's never done anything controversial in his life. This is your first Stone film. We watched yeah. Wall Street 2, Paint Never Dries. <laughs> Were you avoiding him? Uh, yes. Why? Uh, because he's a weird conspiracy theorist and I- But which, but like specifically which? Oh, I mean like all of them. <laughs> My first real aversion to him was like hearing about JFK, the fact that his, his whole, as I've said on previous episodes, I have uh, no time for JFK conspiracy theories. Why? I mean, it's boring to me. Like we, we, we know, we know that Oswald shot him. I mean, it, it is a perfectly reasonable explanation that Oswald yeah. was a like disgruntled weirdo who. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah and but it, work, like, it works what? perfectly fine with Oswald acting alone. And yeah. I, 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 anything you want to add on to that, you you have some like real solid evidence for, and I don't think anyone has that yet. But he is. A, I mean, this is a lie, but he he's just making a film about it you know like the difference between saying there was a conspiracy and making a film about what if there was a conspiracy very different right sure but his from what i know about the, about that movie oh no he, like yeah, absolutely yeah. in the, in this case yeah yeah he, he, he's making that film to advance a to advance his specific viewpoint and also that film is like Mainly about like, like, like making some weird homophobic attacks on on like a real guy who existed. Well, I I mean, and I mean, his you never lack for viewpoint in an Oliver Stone yeah. film, and like this is a guy he he came up as a screenwriter, but like the things that made his name were his three films, really about his experience in World War, not in World War Two, World War B. <laughs> it's the Fifth World War. Yeah. No, it was a police action in Vietnam, home of the Five Bloods. Um, Duh, Five Bloods. No, that's the title of the film. I'm referring to the real... Uh, there's the name of the toy. I'm talking <laughs> about the blood, the bloods that the five <laughs> were based on. Buzz Lightyear. <laughs> Coming to a theater near you. No. Or Disney Plus, right? Is, actually, is this a real movie? I still, I'm still not sure. What makes something not a real movie? If it's on Disney Plus. Uh, that's how I sleep at night, because otherwise I'd have to believe that Artemis Fowl was a real movie. <laughs> I don't understand how about whether it is real or not affects how it hurts you. Uh, because if it was just a horrible nightmare I had, then- <laughs> Okay, okay. So you're not, you're not just being, like, dismissive about wh- what is real film. You are <laughs> exiling things that are purely for Disney Plus to the realm of dreams. Yeah, I- I I made up the fact that there was a Kenneth Branagh directed adaptation of Artemis Fowl, and no one can convince me otherwise. Mm, okay, okay. Then why'd you log it on Letterboxd? <laughs> <laughs> His head's exploded. What, what, why, why, why did I do like a 40 fucking tweet live thread about it? Oh, God. That movie made me so angry. Uh, so the, the only time I've ever live tweeted a movie. Your dead tweeted. Mm-hmm. Because you died and dreamed it. Yep. And it was only- And if you die in your dream, you die in real life. No, you you wake up. Nope. Yeah. Name one person who's died in a dream and died in real life. Uh, APOC. (laughs) Cypher. So are you saying the Matrix is a metaphor for dreams? I mean, it's a metaphor for a lot of things. No, I don't think the Matrix is a metaphor for anything. I think it's a movie about doing flips and running up walls. Yeah, no, I think the Matrix, if I had to boil it down thematically, is- 
what if there was this sweet ass huge video game? What if what if guns were even cooler? <laughs> yeah. What if you walked uh, into the lobby of a building and an innocent human with a real life and family said, "Hold up!" When you set off the metal detector and you opened your jacket to reveal a lot of guns, and he said, "Oh shit!" And then you strike him in the chest, throwing him backwards, and then you just start shooting everyone in the room, and then the propeller heads spy break starts and you just continue shooting and then your friend Keanu Reeves also enters and starts shooting and when he runs out of bullets he gets more guns and then there's this bit where you've run out of ammo so you do a flip you do a cartwheel and as you grab a gun by the hilt the spy break cuts out and you just hear the click of picking up the gun and it's iconic It's but it's not even the iconic moment within the thing which is obviously when a guy is coming at you with a shotgun but you flip it in such way that now you're holding it and you shoot him yeah but it's also about what if you were the world number one limbo champion (laughs) i have you seen have you watched like professional professional limbo i've seen a video of like the world's greatest roller skate limbo champion limbo under multiple cars yeah a at speed like, it is like I mean, it's what you're imagining which is like you take a photo of a person on roller skates select everything from the ankles <laughs> up tilt it 90 degrees back and yeah but yeah you know, like you, you've just got to have like the, like you've got to have the heaviest feet in the world and no weight anywhere else in your body See, the thing otherwise that, I don't understand how that works the thing that interests me about Oliver Stone uh, uh, as a person is that there is something for everyone to hate about him yeah like this is the guy who made the film about George W. Bush that angered both sides, and he is a man who made which, which film was that W. Oh, w. Right with a Bosch Drolin. Yeah, what was it about W that made that made people so angry? Um, the right thought it was an attack, and the left thought it wasn't enough of an attack. Oh, okay, in a way that like, but no one was mad at Nixon. Like he made Nixon. He has made extensive multiple documentaries about Hugo Chavez, mm. um, the Venezuelan dictator who he clearly had a lot of unadorned like appreciation for and Chavez is a more complex figure than mainstream media narratives make him out to be but also he was a terrible dictator you know like if that makes sense yeah but also has done like spent two years interviewing Vladimir Putin in a semi kind of softball way. He has supported at elections Jill Stein and Ron Paul. And he clearly is someone who does not lack a viewpoint, obviously. Mm. Platoon born on the 4th of July. I'm furious about Vietnam mm. and with good reason, uh, obviously. And like, as much as I do not like the doors, of the band or the doors of the film, <laughs> that's a film with something to say. It's right. not just about Jim Morrison was this genius. And like it questions and interrogates those things. Any given Sunday really picks apart what it's like to for it to be Sunday, you know? Just having a relax, but yeah. Savages asks, what if there were some savages? (laughs) Yeah. And um of course Evita, a film he wrote, Mm. asks, What if Evita? Yeah, and you know what? There's no answer to that because it doesn't make sense as a question. <laughs> um, and the first Wall Street, which I watched, is deep background. 
um, uh, for our watching of Wall Street 2, Paint Never Dries, um, is an interesting film because it very clearly has something to say in that you've got Charles Sheen, who I love. He's great. Never done anything wrong. No. Um, he's a total fucking rock star from Mars. Come on, bro. He's got tiger blood. Um, if he gave someone else his brain, they'd be like, dude, can't handle it. Is this guy who's trying to be kind of like doing the proper, being just an honest stockbroker. And then he meets Gordon Gecko, who very disappointingly is not a living Gecko. No. Uh, it's, it's just being betrayed again by Hollywood. Just having finished romancing the stone, it's Mick Douglas, um, and, and who, who seduces Charlie Sheen. Uh, into this world of insider training and, and trump and trading. Tra- 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 uh, did I say training? Yeah. I, yeah, I just, Lick Clips really melted my brain. I feel like I'm, everything I'm saying, I'm prying out of molasses in my mind. Um, <laughs> is that, and kind of perverts him and Charles Sheen sees the good, uh, uses his own tricks against him. Right. Because he's going to ruin a good company and make lots of people, including his dad, played by Martin Sheen. And it is a film that is very clearly sceptical of both the system and the kind of people it creates. Yeah. And that the end point is very clearly like the best thing we can do with the system is use it to stop itself. It's like the financial version of my favorite subgenre of film, modern subgenre of film, which is like woman is turned into monster by rape culture or the patriarchy and uses said monstrosity to kill men. Yeah. If anyone hasn't seen Miss 45 by Abel Ferrara, pretty good. Yeah. Lady Macbeth is the one I yeah. always return to, um, but there's, 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 there's a bunch. Yeah. Surprisingly, there's a lot of movies about that topic. Yeah, and good, we deserve it. That's speaking as a man, um, <laughs> and not in like a yeah step on me way, but in like <laughs> no, no, annihilate us. Sorry, um, we we deserve it. Um, but that, but for like kind of the financial sector. Yeah. And, uh, so much ink has been spilled about the misplaced fandom that Gordon Gecko got. And part of that is in the film's aesthetic, which always remains within Wall Street. And it's always, it's beautiful, it's clean, it's slick. Everyone's hair looks so damp. And in these cool moments, and like it is cool, it's testosterone it's powerful. And Stone is clearly commenting on these things. But the fact that like having a character yell at a bunch of investors, greed is good was taken as like a sincere endorsement of the thing yeah. is a knock against the film, but it's a film with something to say. And so I was really interested to see what he had to say specifically about the GFC. And this film was made in 2010 and it's about 2008. Yeah. And it, the really weird thing is that it does, it feels like he has nothing to say. Yeah, well, he, he, he feels like. Well, the thing he has to say is like, wouldn't it be great if magic fusion super green energy existed? He has a take on, on the global financial crisis, which is basically just like, so much of this movie felt like it could have been like written by Aaron Sorkin doing the newsroom, where he's just like, 
Yeah, here, here's here's what I would have done like when, when, when this big world event was happening. Here, here's here's how it should have gone if he was smart. The the Sorkin the connection that I make to Sorkin is the fact that Shia LaBeouf is the lead in this film, and that's the last we're going to talk about Shia LaBeouf, mm-hmm. who is shit and yep. can f- absolutely fuck off. Um, uh, his character is like the good stock guy yeah he he works in green fuels he's got this project he's working on with these people who are inventing magic super clean energy and, and he's doing the right thing all the time like, through the markets and, and the there there are evil people within the system who are making these terrible things like yeah, the global and, when, and when people are like mm, we should we should invest more in 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 shale oil drilling he's like no, here's a good market-based reason why we shouldn't do that, actually. And, and everyone's like, hmm. And, and um, he, he he leaks about the bad things to his uh, journalist girlfriend, Carrie Mulligan, who's Gordon Gecko's daughter. And Gordon Gecko comes back and is like, I'm refa- reformed, or am I? Or will it take the love of family to make me see that maybe money should sleep? Yeah. Um, and it, it's just nothing. It's just I I wanted an angry excoriation of the monsters who did this. And yeah, we've got like, there's like well, so, yeah. So through most of the movie, it seems like Gordon Gecko has been reformed. He gives all these big speeches about how about how invest- greed isn't good. Yeah, no, yeah, he, he, is he's, greed. He's written a book called Is Greed Good? Yeah, I mean, he's giving a talk about it. And he says like, you know, thirty years ago, I used to famously say greed is good, but now I'm not so sure. But, and, and he talks about how, like, oh, you know, investment banking does all these bad things and subprime mortgages, blah, blah, blah. Yep. And, and he's like, oh, okay, so he, he's not, he's not one of those guys anymore. And then, uh, near the end of the film, there's a twist that, uh, uh he's actually been playing everyone all along and he steals a hundred million dollars <laughs> from his daughter <laughs> and, uh, and goes off to England to start a new, like, investment, a new hedge fund or whatever. And, 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 and you're like, okay, so great. That, that's, that, that's, that's a take. The, 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 this guy who has been, like, Talking about being reformed and like and and about all the problems with the system, the whole movie has just been playing everyone, and he's actually the exact same person he has been always. Yeah, like that. That's that's not that's not an amazing like yeah. that's not an amazing take, but it's it's something, and it's kind of like it's a coherent idea. Okay. But but what he does is he takes that hundred million dollars of startup capital to start his own investment firm in England. Shia, what are Shia LaBeouf's characters? It's name? Jacob Moore. Jake uh, is like you better give this money back or you won't see your grandson. Yeah, because it turns out that Carrie Mulligan's pregnant. Yeah. And he he gives uh, Michael Douglas... A uh, like a DVD with with like a four second loop of a sonogram on it. Yeah, and he's like, it's in like UHD. That's a that that's a four point seven gigabyte <laughs> four second yeah. loop. And it's like, uncompressed. That's ten, that's a ten bit sonogram. And you can't like, tell. You 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 better give our, you better give our money back, or you'll never see your grandson. And Gordon Gecko's like. Mm, I like money, but yeah. And then, like two scenes later, he shows up back in New York, kind of just like walks out of the bushes while Carrie <laughs> Mulligan and Charlotte Buff are standing out on standing out on the street, and he's just like. I'm uh, I'm here to tell you I've changed my ways but he hasn't changed his ways what he's done is because he in that time he's made a billion dollars profit and including Josh Brolin is the bad guy um, who you'll remember from being everyone's the bad guy okay within the film the the 
The antagonist. The antagonist is uh, is Josh Brolin, who's uh, pretty good in this. I think. I mean, yeah, because he's Josh Brolin. Yeah, yeah, like that's. It's also the Michael Douglas thing of like Michael Douglas uh, is uh, is just a compelling but, person but, to watch but, but, on but screen. Like, this type of character isn't something I've seen Josh Brolin do a lot of. Like he he's a very kind of like like well put together like investment banker. Where usually you see him in stuff in like Coney type stuff where he's kind of like like scrappy and uh, but. Uh, or when he's purple Homer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But like he's 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 good here playing a totally different character, whereas Michael Douglas is doing uh like Michael Douglas in this. Yeah. And I, I think both of those things are compelling to well, me. Sure, yeah. But um uh, yeah, Josh Brolin is revealed as uh, the real villain he probably caused the global financial crisis and, and he he's working or like or he at least like knew it was coming and was like betting on it happening yeah. so he could make lots of money he, he was christian bale in the big short yeah except he doesn't like metallica as much <laughs> and both of his eyes are good does christian bale have a weird eye Matt? i can't remember he, he has some gimmick um but what happens is uh josh brolin also like the first act of the film uh, is jake is the scrappy up and comer and frank langella is his boss and mm-hmm. he's from the old days of wall street now it's just algorithms telling me what to do um and, and then the company falls apart and he commits suicide yeah and um that's josh brolin's thought and jake outs that and Jake and Josh Brolin is taken out and Gordon Gecko then gets all of Josh Brolin's friends to invest with him yeah. as if they were not also part of the problem and that is like Gordon Gecko's happy ending and then when he comes back to them it's not like I've dissolved the company Yeah, it is I'll, I'll give you the hundred million dollars back I've still got a billion and all yeah, of uh, the villain's friends now work with me but then the film like literally placed <laughs> this must be the place <laughs> brackets reprise <laughs> naive melody naive melody yeah. um uh the soundtrack literally plays this must be the place naive melody uh as and it's like this is a happy thing and uh, it's so weird and yes. they, they put the hundred million dollars towards the, the magic green tech yeah which then we don't see it because the, the credits start rolling, but you better believe they probably finally invent, uh, like, like literally uh, limitless energy yeah, from seawater. Yeah, like laser powered fusion reactors that turn seawater into, into limitless energy. I mean, everyone's uh, happy and cool. Uh, and it is and just like it, it's like it's like the end of Mary Poppins Returns, where the whole time you have these kind of like little mentions of like workers' rights and, and like yeah. unionization, and then at the end you have you have a thing where like the bank is going to take away the house, and the only thing that can save them is, is if all of the lamplighters uh, work together or unionize uh, in order to like make a tower of ladders up beside a big bend so they can turn the clock back. Uh, and then they, they 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 can't they can't reach it. So a a magic rich woman floats in and uh, uses ma- uses her magic powers to turn the clock back. And then it's like, oh, see, they did it. And you're like, no, the thing you were actually saying, you failed at saying. You and you you just sold you just sold it with magic. Well, it does seem like at the end of this film, the resolution is. Oh, the problem is all of those stockbrokers were investing, not were doing bad trades and not good trades rather than like because to me the clear takeaway of the global financial crisis is that like anthony scaramucci 
literally has a cameo in this film. Yeah. Well, he, Donald he, Trump he, shot he got, one. He's got two scenes in this movie. <laughs> shot a cameo and was cut, but it was literally like the GFC to me, the moral of that is maybe coke addicted shitheads who have no thoughts in their skull beyond like tits <laughs> should not be allowed on a basis of privilege alone to control the livelihoods of everyone in the world. Yeah. And this film, and that is the kind of thing, I like, any given Sunday, as well as being about Sundays, <laughs> is, is about it, f- American football teams sweeping under the rug how bad the injuries against the workers are. Right. And it was talking about that before, that, that's a 1997 mm. film, like, that has like good Al Pacino in it. That's how long ago we're talking back when Al Pacino was good. And so it's not too much to ask yeah. to do that, you know? And it is just, so, it's like the whole thing is, it just feels so disappointing and empty, right? Yeah. It, it's possible to make the argument that, that the ending is, I don't know, supposed to be seen as like chilling and like, oh, like Gordon Gecko's like taking out another one of his. His opponents now, and now this person who, who represents the like true ruthlessness and horror of capitalism has even more power. But like, if if that's what it's going for, I think it misses, and the whole thing just feels so like toothless. I I don't like the idea of Oliver Stone really, and this being the only movie I've seen of his. I don't I don't like this. But like, he seemed like from what I understand, like he is a guy who like goes after targets like really fucking hard. And, and and this movie just has none of that. And like, he he has made delicate and intricate films. Mm. Like World Trade Center is not a film I love, but it like the idea of approaching nine eleven just by following the people who were trapped in it. Yeah, by, like is an interesting angle to take on it. Um, and, and there's an intricacy to that. But then there's also, like, Natural Born Killers, which is a kaleidoscopic fantasia about how the media glamorizes and causes violence. And it does that by every other shot being in a different format, in a different ratio, played at a different speed. Like, that is literally a two-hour film that is cut like a mid-90s MTV um, music video promo. And, like, that's intentional. That was his goal. And, And... and like JFK takes similar approaches. I, Oliver Stone's quote is like, I want to make films where you, you never want, you never get bored and you never want to get up to pee. And like he has this, like uh, the, this vicious approach to both the audience's, um, interest and his subject. And there are moments in this film, there's a scene where Michael Douglas is talking to Jake on a train where we keep doing these really hard cuts to like subway trains whipping past them. Yeah. Where I'm like, yes, no, that's Oliver Stone. He's hiding in this film somewhere. And like, admittedly, part of it is that I'm sure that Oliver Stone has to hush someone up with a bunch of money because he's probably done terrible things. And so he was just like, yeah, I'll make another Wall Street, whatever. Like, it's telling 
telling that he that his writing credit on this is for creating the characters. Oh, okay. And, he, 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 didn't, he didn't actually write it. Or, well, he doesn't have a writing credit. Okay, right. right. Um, uh, and he's written most, if not all, of his other films. Right, yeah. Um, and, or, and done heavy passes on them. Like, that's the thing about nat- Natural Born Killers is that um, Tar- it feels very much like a Tarantino film, but Tarantino has uh, um, only a story credit, and that's because Oliver Stone rewrote it so heavily. Right. And WGA goes on, like, literally the amount of text by which author, you yeah. know? Um, and, and so it feels like the version of this film that I want from Oliver Stone is hiding in there, kind of creaking and want to get out. And, it, like, the most telling thing is that Bud Charles Sheen from the first film, whose, whose arc was about, like, being like, no, these assets stripping, insider trading, bastards... Uh, what is wrong like people controlling businesses just with numbers is, is immoral and i'm going to go and work at a good blue collar company where my dad is the head of the union blue star airlines uh and, and um i'm gonna and he does a stock buyback thing blah 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 but it's gonna be good honest work mm. if you know what i mean admittedly as a ceo and he has a cameo in this film where he's like, oh, yeah, it was great. Um, I turned it into a vendor uh, and then sold it for parts. And now I play golf and have two models with me. And it's like, it is like if Mary Poppins, <laughs> um, hey, if Mary Poppins returns, Mary Poppins were not, was not in it, but for one scene where they're like, oh, and, and it's the two kids. And they see Mary Poppins and Mary Poppins is like, oh, I was I was sarcastic about everything I taught you. I I don't think a spoonful of sugar make, makes the medicine go down. I think the best way to teach to take medicine is to chain people it's to, to the- shove it up your ass. <laughs> like, right. Yeah. Like it is it, it, it's, but like again, it's, like that, that, that feels like it could be <laughs> like a take. Right. But like virus of capitalism was already like so far inside Charlie Sheen's mind that even when he decides I'm going to go do good honest work like he, he can't stop kind of like thinking about money and business in, in those sorts of terms and I'm- and, and like if if that had been more than like a 20 second scene yeah. they could have done something to to explore that I mean you you have to work around the limits of when Charlie Sheen is coherent yes. you know that like that he was on set for the whole let's say two months they were shooting yeah, well, they, 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 they actually got Antonio to come in and like do lots so many takes him to like bring his energy down <laughs> Um, but like Oliver Stone would let us know, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. and it is the fact that when we do other Oliver Stone and like we do know because we know the whole thing that this time it's personal because the bad mm. guy killed Frank Langella and, and killed both Robot and Frank Langella in this situation because uh, um, Michael Robot Doug- and Frank in theaters now because <laughs> Michael Douglas's cocktail robot from the original <laughs> Wall Street, a thing that's actually in the film, does not return um so we have to presume that josh brolin killed him as well and so we get these moments of like uh, a scene will end and charlotte buff will look in the mirror and you'll see frank langella's shadow and it it just like all these moments were like maybe he is complexifying it to say no we would know the things he's choosing to complexify are like and it's just so flat and empty and like 
You should see other Oliver Stone films. Yeah, I, I will eventually. Well, because they're like I'll, I'll see Platoon because I like Willem Dafoe and he's in that. Yeah. yeah. Um. Well, and they're 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 like whether you agree with him or not, and the answer is almost always not. Because mm. even when I agree with him on things, it's very much in that like you're right, but you're still a dick way, well, yeah. and, and, and it increasingly feels like whatever the human version of a stopped clock is right to yeah, say, yeah. but the clock is racing and has hit any angle, you know, has hit every possible time at any single moment. You're like, technically, that clock is right. It's, it's the Oliver Stone take. Whereas this is just like what the fuck? Yeah. So I think it's shy. That's yeah, what I'm saying. It's the same. Yeah. Um, Worse than the Pink Panther. Yeah, absolutely. But and this film, this this is like and another th- thing to tag is that the first Wall Street works very hard to make people just talking and stock trading floors interesting. Like there's clear craft going into like how do i show you these things how do you learn about these things where do i put this information and this film is a series of lectures and rooms explaining it and then flat kind of post fincher everything low contrast gray yeah people looking at screens and the moments when stone flashes through there's a bit when um, Jake is losing a chunk of money and we're looking through his computer screen at him. We're like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, there's like a bunch of like split screen bits fun for a bit. And he, does, he does he does like a bunch of like weird wipes and like iris effects. And he's like, do more weird transitions. And that, that's that's what people, that's, that's, that, that, that's like at least interesting to watch. But mainly it just feels sad mm. and, and lazy. And, it, and it, is, it does very much fall into the field of films where I'm like, it feels kind of immoral that this exists and that the money that went towards making this film didn't go towards feeding the hungry. Cause if you're just not going to try, you can feel people not trying. And like, I think Douglas uh, does a great job. Mm. I think Brolin does a great job. Um, I like always happy to see Carrie Mulligan yeah. show up and like, she tries hard with a paper thin character. Yeah, absolutely. This is Eli Wallach's final feature film. And, and he, like, he do- doesn't get a whole lot to do in it, but he's, 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 it, it's, it's always, it's always nice to see Eli. And like, as much as he's non-existent, Frank, Langella's character like no it's, as much as the character Frank Langella is playing which is like the good old stock trader back when yeah. things were good never existed they were all monsters um, and were all um, trying to work out how they were the good one you know um, he plays that character very well yeah there's a scene right at the beginning of the movie where, 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 where he, he gives uh, Shia Lewis character a, a check his, his like bonus for like a million dollars and Shy is doing his things like, a oh, oh, million dollars. Oh, that's, a, that's a lot of money. Thank you. Oh, well, I don't even know what to say. And Frank Langella is like, I know you think, I don't give a shit. What do you want to do? Like, give, 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 give me a bloody, give me a bloody kiss. Yeah. And then at, at the end of the scene, Shy goes, like, goes and gives him a little kiss on the top of the head. Mm. And then there's like a cut to Frank Langella's face. And he, I think he, 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 he reacts to that really well. But. <laughs> If you're going to get... And what was the budget of this film? Okay, it's uh, 70. Seven, if you get $70 million to make a film... That's that's not that's, that's, that's not on the screen. Well, it's expensive to make films about rich people. Yeah. Care a bit. Don't... Yeah. Like, it just feels... 
Yeah, it made me feel quite sad in a way. And it is interesting that, like, Oliver Stone, as he's gone on, has gotten madder about some things. He made that Snowden film, mm. which I haven't seen, but I understand is, like, mixed. But, like, yeah. Shite. Yeah, shite. So what are we watching next week, Finn? Uh, next week, we are watching Carol Reed's 1949 noir masterpiece of The Third Man, starring Joseph Cotton, Orson Welles, and Alita Vali. And uh, with that, we are watching Rob Cohen's 2002 uh, something masterpiece, Triple uh, X, starring Vin Diesel and uh, bad person Argia Argento. And, uh, God, what's his name? Samuel L. Jackson. No, New Zealand. <laughs> Martin Sokas. Yeah. We, we don't actually know what the connection is between these two movies, uh, but on the IMDb page for Triple X. No, for the third man oh, under right. movie connections. Oh, right, right. Triple um, X is listed. Yeah. Uh, and, so we'll, we'll try and figure out what the connection is. And I, I'm just... I, I, I think it's because uh, in, in, in The Third Man, Trevor Howard is a not-your-daddy's uh, superhero or spy or whatever. I'm just worried that... That you're going to have too good a time watching Triple <laughs> X? I, I, I have severe levels of extremity abhorrence. Hmm. Um, I'm allergic to extreme stunts yeah and it's specifically ramstein concerts and i'm worried that i might overdose on extremity yeah you you you, you haven't even been able to watch that that video where 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 werner herzog narrates skateboarding recently <laughs> i've never watched it yeah. and I, now i can't yep um it's a, it's a tragic life so where can we find you Finn? uh who cares uh you can find the show on twitter at Shite Sound Pod, or, or you can email us at uh, shitesoundpod at gmail.com. Check out our website at shiteandsound.com. I'm on all various social media platforms as Youther Lives, U T H I L I V E S. Sign up for my newsletter, The Dean's List, at bit.ly slash Youther Lives. Um, follow us on Letterboxd. Our theme song is Vinox by Kazan Bland. Check them out on Bandcamp. Movies are good. Even bad ones. Go, Go watch them. You've brought a, a special subject for us to talk about this week, uh, just like when Gianni Versace <laughs> brought a special subject of... <laughs> so I don't know why I'm laughing. And what I'm about to say is, is a real thing that happened. It's like, you know, it's interviewing Gianni Versace. <laughs> And he brought his special subject, I'm immune. <laughs> oh, I'm terrible. I'm making my laughs. Still laugh so much at this joke. Ahem. Anyway, it's not a joke. It's a thing. Just like when Gianni Versace came on the show. <laughs> and said, <laughs> Fuck me. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> 
Whoa, do it quickly. <laughs> he said, I'm a moon. <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit! This is terrible. It's like like someone has stopped. This is absolutely cut, but I do want to say the joke. What Johnny Versace said when he came in was. <laughs> I'm gonna write it down. Yeah, no, I was gonna suggest that. <laughs> Could you read? Yes, sure. Okay. Um, a message. <laughs> this is this is what he said. I just messaged him. We all remember the podcast. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I remember. I, I, I remember that episode well. I, 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 I believe he said. I'm immune to bullets and I dare anyone to prove me otherwise. <laughs> it's not even that good a joke. It's about a man's horrific murder. Okay. Oh, anyway. 